Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome everyone who's joining us today through our online campus. Thank you again so much for being a part of our worship experience this weekend. We are thrilled to be together. If you have a Bible, I want you to grab it and uh, once again open with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms and find Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Open your Bible there and just hold that ready. We're in a brief sermon series from Psalm 118 called Peace in His Presence. And really, more than anything else, what we're focused on in this sermon series is how can I experience peace in my life when I live in a world that's filled with so much difficulty and so much trouble? In fact, we spent a great deal of time last week as we introduced this series talking about the reality of uh, difficulty and trouble in life. I, I, I even began the message by simply saying life is hard. But there are a couple things we need to remember when it comes to the difficulty and the trouble of life. The first one is this. The Bible actually tells us that difficulty and trouble in this world is something that should be expected by all of us. And whether you're talking about Jesus' words to the disciples in John 16, 33, when he literally just looked at them and said, in this world you will have trouble, or you're talking about the way James began his New Testament epistle in James chapter 1 and verse 2 by saying, count it all joy or consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever, when, whenever you face trials of many kinds or many other verses, the truth is the Bible just makes it clear that while we live our lives in this world, we're going to be surrounded by difficulty and by trouble. The Apostle Peter even wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, rather. He said, Dear friends, now listen to this, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, this is the reality of the scripture. The Bible never deceives us about the truth of trouble and difficulty in life. The Bible never tries to tell us that life is anything other than hard. That's the first thing we need to remember. <clears throat> the second thing we need to remember is that the Bible also tells us that we can experience peace in the midst of the difficulties of life. And that's what this series is all about. That's why we have our Bibles open to Psalm 118 today, because I really believe the way I understand this Psalm, I believe we discover how to find peace in the presence of God when we embrace some very simple and very practical truths that have the power to change our lives. But before we talk about that today, before we really turn our attention to Psalm 118, I want to take just a few minutes to talk with you about peace because I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that everyone listening to me understands the meaning of peace, note this, from a biblical perspective. I want to make sure we all understand the meaning of peace from a biblical perspective. It's easy to think of peace only in terms of of the absence of conflict. And that's really the way we think of it from a worldly perspective, that peace is the absence of conflict. And that's not wrong, because that's certainly one definition of peace. In fact, that's a definition I'd love. Uh, I'd love to experience in my life. I'd love to spend the rest of my life with no conflict. I've had all the conflict that I want in my life. I would love that kind of peace. But the peace we're talking about is so much more than that because biblical peace, and you might want to write this down somewhere, biblical peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the idea of being complete or whole. Let me say that again because it's important. Biblical peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the idea of being complete or whole. 
The word peace in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shalom. That's probably uh, something you're familiar with. The word shalom literally means completeness, soundness, and welfare. It comes from the root word shalom, which literally means to make amends or to make whole. That word shalom was often used to describe, for example, what happens when you repay a debt. Because when you pay back a debt, you make amends, you become whole with whoever it was that you owed. After the debt has been paid, the two of you are whole. And that's why the word shalom, which comes from the root word shalom, literally, literally means complete. The word for peace in the New Testament is the Greek word irini, irini. And it means quietness or rest. But it comes from the root word irao, which means to join or to tie together as a whole or tie together into a whole. And so just like the word shalom, it carries the idea or the meaning of unity, of completeness. Now, I wish we could spend more time on those word studies, but we have to move on. When you put all of this together, the reality of what the word peace means in the Old Testament and the reality of what the word peace means in the New Testament, when you put all of it together, you come to the unmistakable conclusion that biblical peace, as I've already said, is more than just the absence of conflict. It's the idea of being at rest because you're living in a state of wholeness. You're living in a state of completeness. First and foremost, with God, you're whole and complete when it comes to your relationship with God. And I hope that all of us will understand that when you live at peace with God, that's the only way you can really ever live at peace with yourself and have the ability to live at peace with others. And so here's kind of the bottom line. If we cut to the chase, here's what all of this means. Biblical peace isn't determined by how few problems you have. It's determined by the presence of God in your life. Biblical peace is not determined by anything that is or isn't happening around you in the world. Biblical peace is determined by what's happening inside of you because you're living in the presence of God. And here's the other thing we have to understand about this kind of peace. You can't find it on your own. Look at these words on the screen from John chapter 4 and verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace, note this, I give you. And then he says, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What's Jesus saying there, friends? Well, he's saying, I'm giving you a peace that only I can give. I'm the only place you can get it. God is the only source of this peace. And it's not like any peace that you could ever find or experience in this world. And then he adds the words, so don't be troubled and don't be afraid. He's talking about a peace that comes only from the presence of God in your life. And that's what this study is all about. Now, last week, as we began, we talked about what I called the first step to experiencing this peace in the presence of God, peace in his presence. And I told you from our text that the first thing we have to do if we want to experience peace in the presence of God is you've got to choose God. And I remember saying that last week, and, and saying as a follow-up, I know that sounds simple. I, I know that even sounds overly simple. But I also shared with you that I've been a pastor long enough to know that oftentimes uh, for people, even people of faith, when difficulty and trouble comes into their life, when they face hardship, oftentimes they turn away from God rather than turning to God. 
And so we have to understand that finding peace in God's presence comes first by choosing God. And we choose God, we saw last week, because God is for us and God will help us. In fact, one of the verses we looked at last week was Psalm 118, verse 7, that says, The Lord is with me. He is my helper. God is for me. He will help me. That's the way it reads in my NIV Bible. In the New Living Translation, it literally says, Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. We got to hang on to those truths. We choose God because he's for us and he will help us. That's what we're told um, in the uh, Old Testament. There's a New Testament parallel to that truth because this is a, an immutable truth about God that he's always for us, that he'll always help us. We see a parallel passage in the New Testament in Romans 8.31 where Paul writes and says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so the first step to experiencing peace with God uh, peace in the presence of God, peace in His presence, is to choose God. Now, I'm going to come back at the end of the message. I'm going to talk a little bit more today about what it really means to choose God, but I want to move on. And I want to say that if the first step to finding peace in His presence, in God's presence, is to choose God, then the second step, according to what I read in Psalm 118, is to honor God. Step one is to choose God. Step two is to honor God. And that brings us to our text. And so if you've got your Bible open there to Psalm 118, I want you to follow along as I read what will be a very brief sermon text today, just two verses, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. This is what it says. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's so brief, I'm going to read it a second time. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We, uh, we always uh, love the opportunity to read God's Word together, and we always ask His blessing on, on that reading. Here's what I want you to know. <clears throat> when life is difficult and hard, filled with trouble, filled with one trial after another, you can find peace in the presence of God by understanding that God can take the most difficult circumstances of our lives and he can turn them around. The psalmist here in Psalm 118, and most Bible scholars believe that was David, even though he's not named specifically. The psalmist uses a phrase that probably sounds familiar. In verse 22, he writes and says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. There's a reason why that would sound familiar to anyone who is a student of the Bible or has spent very much time in church. It's because uh, those words are found multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus references those same words, the stone the builder rejected has become the capstone in the Gospels. It's found in Mark's Gospel in chapter 21 and verse 42, or excuse me, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21 and verse 42, in Mark's Gospel in chapter 12 and verse 10, and in Luke's Gospel in chapter 20 and verse 17. Then later, Peter, the apostle Peter, speaks those words in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, and still later, Peter writes those words in his first epistle. He writes them in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And I want to give you an explanation of that verse. What that means is that God can take the difficulty and the trouble of life, even things that initially look like a great failure or a great defeat, and he can turn it around to become the foundation of something new and something great. That's what God can do. 
Now, when we read those words in the New Testament, uh, obviously, those words are all a reference to Jesus. <clears throat> I mean, the words that from Psalm 118 and verse 22 that we read in the New Testament, referenced by Jesus, spoken by Peter, written by Peter, those are always a reference to Jesus. And here's why. Because when Jesus came into the world, he was rejected by the religious leaders. He was condemned to death by the political leaders. And ultimately, he was crucified on a cross between two common criminals. And when that happened, his enemies thought that that would be the end of him, that they would never have to hear about Jesus or deal with Jesus ever again. But they were wrong because even though his lifeless body was placed in a tomb, he didn't stay in that tomb and he rose from the dead. And as a result, his followers who had abandoned him after his arrest were suddenly filled with a courage and conviction that led to a movement of faith that continues to this very day. And so what we understand about that is that Jesus was the stone that was initially rejected, but then ultimately became the capstone. What does that word capstone mean? The cornerstone, the keystone, literally translated the head of the corner. It means he became the foundation of the church and the Christian faith. And friends, this is how God works. He has the ability to take any circumstance in life, even what looks like the greatest failure or the greatest defeat, and he can turn it around. This is how God works. That's why Jesus quoted these words in the Gospels. That's why Peter spoke these words and later wrote these words, because this is how God works. And here's what that means for people like you and me. It means that what God did for Jesus, he can and he will do for you and for me. He can take the difficulties of our lives. He can take the troubles of our lives, the trials of our lives. He can take even what looks like the greatest defeat and the greatest failure of our lives, and he can turn them around to become the foundation of something brand new because this is how God works and this is what God does. While I was preparing this message, uh, looking for a a way to illustrate this truth beyond. I mean, I think this, the reality of the story of Jesus is certainly enough of an illustration, but as I look for another way to illustrate this truth, I ran across um, the way one pastor, so this wasn't original with me, but the way one pastor illustrated this, this biblical truth in a man whose name was Charles Colson. That will be a familiar name to many of you, but probably unfamiliar to many as well. Um, he, he is not a contemporary figure, but he has a very compelling story. Charles Colson, as many of you will know, served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He ended up being indicted and sent to prison uh, after the Watergate scandal that happened in the early 1970s. I, I personally became a huge fan of Charles Colson when I heard him preach in person uh, at the North American Christian Convention in 1997. I believe it was in Kansas City. Uh, and I will also say that one of the books that he wrote, a book that was simply called The Body, maybe you're familiar with it, The Body, that was one of the most influential and impactful books that I've ever read. Well, the Watergate scandal that sent Charles Colson to prison left him as a broken man. But while he was in prison, he began reading the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and ultimately, and I'm really fast-forwarding here, ultimately, that led him to put his faith and trust in Christ and become a 
Christian, become a Christ follower. As a result, he became a brand new man and he embraced a brand new life that eventually included the founding of a ministry, a powerful ministry called Prison Fellowship that has impacted the lives of hundreds of thousands of inmates all around the world. Not only that, but he also became one of the most influential voices in the United States and the world for Christ and for his church. I wish we had more time to talk about him, more time to talk about Charles Colson. But the bottom line is, when you look at his life, you see that God literally took his greatest failure and his greatest defeat and made it a capstone, a cornerstone, a foundation for a new life of powerful ministry and spiritual impact. Because that's what God does. And that's the truth that's captured by these words in Psalm 118 and verse 22 when the psalmist writes, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And so here's what that means for all of us, again, on a practical level. The difficulties and struggles we face in life are not always as random and as meaningless as they appear, because God can and God will use them to serve a greater purpose in our lives that ends up being for our good and for His glory. I want to go back uh, real quickly to a verse we talked about last week in part one of this series. I want to go back to Psalm 118 and verse 5. The psalmist writes and says, In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and He answered me by setting me free. That's how it reads in my NIV Bible. That's how we looked at it last week. But I also showed you how it reads in the New American Standard version of the Bible. And in the NASB, it reads like this. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. Now, some of you will remember this. And he answered me and set me in a large place. So while the NIV Bible says that the Lord answered and set me free, the New American Standard Bible translates it like this. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And when I read that verse and I try to think about what it means for me or what it means for you and how I might teach that, then here's what comes to my mind. You know, God has a large place for you. Maybe I I should say it like this. God has the potential of a large place for you. What does that large place look like? I don't know because I don't know the specifics of your story, of your trial, of your struggle, of your hardship, of your failure, your defeat. It could be a place of safety, a large place of safety. It could be a large place of blessing. It could be a large place of ministry and influence. It could be a large place of abundance, and you could go on and on and on. But here's the deal. You can only experience that large place if you believe and trust in the fact that He is the God who can turn things around. You can only experience that large place that he has for you if he if you really believe honestly deeply in your heart that he can take the difficulties of your life again even the worst failures and the worst defeats of your life and turn them around and use them as the foundation for a brand new opportunity. I love these words. I'm going to put them on the screen from Psalm 138 and verse 8. I love these words. This is from the New Living Translation. The psalmist says, the Lord will work out his plans for my life. Don't you love that? Don't you love having that as a foundation that you can stand on this knowledge that the Lord, that God will work out his plans for my life. And then the psalmist goes on to say, for your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't abandon me for you made me. I love this idea 
this, this trust that I can have that no matter what happens in my life, that God is going to be at work and he's going to be working out his plans for my life. But I have to trust him. You have to trust him. You have to believe in him, that he's the God who can turn things around in order for that to happen. And so an essential part of living a life of faith is believing that he can do just that, that he can take anything in your life and turn it around and use it for his good, or excuse me, for your good and for his glory. Look back, let's just, just for a minute, let's look back at the text that we're looking at in this message. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The psalmist writes, and again, probably David, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, note this, and it is marvelous in our eyes what God can do even with the worst moments of your life. Because he's a God who turns things around, can be marvelous in your eyes. This is God's plan. It's always been his plan to take the difficulties and the hardships of our lives <clears throat> and turn them around. <clears throat> so having said all that, let's, let's start to wrap this up. Let's, let's get real practical for our last few minutes together. Uh, once we understand this truth about God, that he can take the difficulties of life, even our failures and defeats, and turn them around and use them for uh, our good and his glory, here's what we need to do. Last week I said we need to choose God. This week I'm going to say this. We need to honor God. We need to honor God. And so the question becomes, how do we do that? Well, we honor God first and foremost by living our lives with a constant awareness of the truth that He is always at work. But beyond that, I'm going to give you three real simple practical things <clears throat> that we can do to honor God. And I'm going to draw all these from Psalm 118. The first one is this, write down somewhere, prayer. Prayer, we need to pray. As we experience the difficulties of life, <clears throat> we need to pray. We honor God when we pray. We need to talk to God about what's happening in our lives. <clears throat> and as we talk to him, we need to acknowledge not just the reality, but the understanding that we have that he can take whatever's going on in our life and turn it around and use it for our good and for his glory. We see this in the Psalms. We go back to Psalm 118.5. Uh, again, that's a verse we talked about last week. And the psalmist said, In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me by setting me free. In the difficulty of my life, when my life was, was uh, in a bad place, when I was surrounded by hardship, when, as literally the word anguish, when life was crushing me, pressing down on me, what did I do? I cried out to the Lord. I prayed. We need to pray. How about Psalm 118 and verse 25? O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. That's a verse that reflects prayer, crying out to God. Let me ask you a question. Why is it <clears throat> that we are so often tempted to pray less when we go through the difficulties of life? Why is that? Praying less will never. As you're watching me at home right now, I want you to say never. Never. Praying less will never help you. We need to pray more. We need to tell God everything that's going on in whatever situation we find ourselves in, believing, as we tell him, believing that he can turn things around. And this is an important step or an important part of honoring God. You don't honor God when you avoid him. You don't honor God when you avoid him. You honor God when you spend time with him. You honor God when you talk to him especially about the reality of your life because you know that he has the ability and the power to turn things around. When you talk to God about the reality of life, you're proactively acknowledging that belief that God can and will act 
on your behalf even in the most difficult moments of life. Let me talk about this just briefly from the perspective of a father. I have two grown children. And, and even as a grandfather with my three grandchildren, I, I'm happy, I'm thankful, I'm honored whenever my children or my grandchildren take the time to come and talk to me. And it doesn't really matter what we talk about. I just like talking to them. I do. And if they come and talk to me about a problem or a difficulty in their life, you can, you can believe, I can guarantee you, that I will do anything and everything that I can to help them turn that problem around, to help them turn that difficult situation around. Well, I'm honored when that happens. And I genuinely believe that God feels the same way when we take the time to talk to Him. We honor God when we talk to Him about our lives, knowing not just that He has the answers that we seek, but He has the, the power and the ability to take the difficulties of our lives, again, even failures and defeats, and turn them around and use them as a foundation for something new. So the first thing we do to honor God is we pray. The second thing we do is, uh, write this down, is gratitude. We're grateful. We're thankful. You know, I don't know about you, but when I pray, I will often use that simple, old, familiar acrostic, Acts, where you take the word Acts and it divides prayer into four different segments. A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication, which is a word that describes seeking God's help, asking God for help. Well, when I do, <clears throat> excuse me, when I do that, <clears throat> it's easy for me to get stuck on the T. It's easy for me to get stuck on the Thanksgiving because as I start thinking, listening to things that I have to be thankful for, um, there's just so much. I can just go just from one thing to the next, from one thing to the next, uh, and one thing to the next. And I really believe that honors God. Psalm 118 is filled with statements of gratitude. Psalm 118 and verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 118.21 says, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Psalm 118 verse 28 says, you are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. And then you get to the end of the psalm and it's, it, it, it finishes the way it began. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Taking the time to express our gratitude to God will always be beneficial for us because it will keep us grounded and it will honor God let me ask you a question. We think about, you know, gratitude and prayers of thanksgiving. Does God owe anything to you? Does God owe you anything? Well, I hope you know the answer to that question is no. God doesn't owe you a thing. He doesn't owe me a thing. But because God loves us, the Bible says God loves us with an everlasting love. He has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And the Bible also says that God has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. And so when we move to honor God through praying prayers of gratitude, of thanksgiving, He moves on our behalf to do what only he can do in our lives, and that includes taking our very worst things, the difficulties of life, even our greatest failures and defeats, and turning them around and using them as a foundation for something good. The third thing I've got written down here, real simply, is the word righteousness. We honor God through righteousness. We honor God um, when we 
do what's right. I know righteousness, that sounds like a kind of a churchy word, but basically what we're talking about is that we honor God when we do what's right, when we live right lives, when we do what's good. We look back in Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20 say, Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I love the imagery there of the gate of righteousness and the righteous entering through that gate. When we live righteous lives, or in other words, when we do what's right and we do what's good, we, we walk through those gates. When we obey God, we, we take a step through those great gates. When we say no to temptation, we take a step through those gates. When we choose to honor God through the difficulties of life and the hardships of life, even the failures and the defeats of life, by acknowledging that He has the ability to turn those things around and use them for our good, we take a step through those gates. And listen, friends, when this is our everyday goal, when doing what's right and doing what's good is our everyday goal, not just in the big things of life, but in the small things, you know what we do? We honor God which is a big part of experiencing peace in his presence. And here's a really practical reason why this is important. God can't, maybe I should say God won't. God won't work in your life. He certainly won't work in your life to turn your life around if you're not committed to living a right life, a righteous life. You don't honor God when you cry out to him in your anguish hoping and expecting that he will rescue you when you have no intention of changing your life if your life is not going in the direction that God wants it to go. And so we honor God when we live right lives because we want to be obedient to his will. Listen, God has always been and will always be in the business of turning lives around, of taking the difficulties of our lives, and I know I've said this multiple times, but I believe in repetition, even our worst failures and our worst defeats, and using them ultimately as a foundation for something new that leads to our good and His glory. That's what He does. <clears throat> when we understand that, then it changes the way we view the difficulties and the disappointments and the failures and the defeats of life, and it motivates us to live a life that honors him. But before we close, I want to say one more thing. I, I told you when we were in the introduction and talking about how last week we began with the basic principle to choose God. This week we talked about honoring God. I told you I wanted to circle back and talk about that for a moment. You know, every man, woman, and child's greatest need in this world is to live at peace with God. And the only way to do that from a foundational standpoint, is to surrender your life in faith and trust to Jesus and allow him to be your savior and your Lord because he provides the way for us to God. He is the bridge. He is the path to God. That's why Jesus said in uh, John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We only experience peace with God when we surrender our lives in complete faith and trust to Jesus. And so as we end this message uh, that talks about living with, or rather living in peace in the presence of God, I wanna ask you, each of you individually, if you are experiencing peace with God 
foundationally because you've surrendered your life and faith and trust to Jesus. You know, I always use three words to describe what needs to happen for someone to make sure that their life is right with God through faith in Christ. And those three words are separation, substitution, and salvation. And real simple, separation just reflects the truth that every one of us has a big problem. Every one of us uh, share in this problem. None of us are perfect. We've all failed. We've all made mistakes. The Bible says it like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul writes in Romans 3.23. And what that sin does is it separates us from God because God is perfect and holy and righteous and he can't live in fellowship with anyone who's anything other than that. And as sinners, we're not perfect and we're not holy and, not, and we're not righteous, not on our own. We never will be on our own. And so there's a separation that takes place in all of our lives between us and God. Sin separates us from God. Uh, but then that leads us to the word substitution. The good news of the scriptures is that because God loves us so much, he doesn't want there to be a separation between us. And so he has moved on our behalf to deal with the reality of our sin by sending Jesus into the world, ultimately to die on the cross, to take our place as a substitute and to give his life in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus, when he died on the cross, died as a substitute. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, God made him, talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to take our sin so that in him, because of what he did on the cross, we might become the righteousness of God. Or in other words, we might become right with God. Jesus died as a substitute. So there's separation, there's substitution. The third word is salvation. You can experience the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life, a brand new life, if you surrender your life in complete faith and trust to Jesus because of what he did on the cross. You know, I love the words of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul writes and says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, separated from God, have been brought near through the blood of Jesus because Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. We can move from being separated from God to being in fellowship with God, perfect peace with God, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, if we surrender our lives to him. And that's the salvation part. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you, if you know right now as you listen to my words that you do not live at peace with God, that you have never surrendered your heart, your life to Jesus, then I want you to reach out to your online campus pastor right now and ask for some help in understanding what you need to do the next steps that you need to take in order to make sure that you've experienced God's gift of salvation through Christ. I want you to do that. Friends, you and I can have peace in the presence of God no matter what happens in our lives or around our lives, no matter how much difficulty or trouble or hardship we experience in this world, because we have a God who can take all of the difficulty and all the trouble and all the hardship and all of our mistakes, even our greatest failures and our greatest defeats, and he can turn those around and he can use them as a foundation for a brand new life. And so because of that, once we choose God, we turn to him in the difficulty of life. We honor him by living with that belief, that knowledge, and that hope. I'm praying that you'll hang on to that today and that um, 
that that will make a difference in your life. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you for the time we've had to share together from your word. And I pray, first of all, right now, that everybody who's listening to me has genuinely chosen you by surrendering their life in complete faith and trust to Jesus. And if there's somebody listening who hasn't, that they will reach out to the online campus pastor or, or, or a pastor that they know, someone that they know who's a believer, and that they'll find out. They'll, they'll ask the question, what do I need to do to be saved? What's my next step? I understand my sin. I understand Jesus died on the cross to take my place. Please tell me my next step, which is, which is complete surrender, complete faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, but but uh, help them to turn to someone and say, help me understand exactly what that means for my life. And Father, I pray that you'd help all of us to honor you with our daily lives uh, because uh, we've chosen you and because we know, we know and believe that you are a God who can turn things around. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.